Hey, welcome everyone. My name is Namit Joshi. I have been a technology investor in M&A and in venture capital over the last decade. And I'm going to be a host on the podcast today. My own background is in technology and finance. Technology being the endless frontier and finance from the ability to find people who are quite literally inventing the future and finding businesses with deep embedded moats. I love outliers, rebels, and people with chips on their shoulders. On this podcast, we aim to handpick operators and investors who place bets on markets, ideas, and people and add value. I like to interview people who will be famous in 10 years, but perhaps for a reason the public is not fully aware of today. I hope to elicit from them new thoughts, frank admission of things they had previously not admitted to, and maybe get them to laugh once or twice. With that out of the way, let's get started. My guest today is Ritu Soni, co-founder of our Indian startup Lightbulb.ai, an emotion and engagement analysis platform. Before this, Ritu was a founder of Obino, a health tech startup specializing in virtual health. Obino was acquired by Roundglass in the second half of 2017. Prior, Ritu also held leadership positions at Airtel, Radio One, Red FM in India. She is also an angel investor and an ex-RJ. So Ritu, Sony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Namit. It's a pleasure to be here. And I hope to be able to do justice to some of the interesting questions that are going to come up soon. And the pleasure is symmetrical. So excited to be talking with you. Everyone's path is idiosyncratic and unique. So to kick things off, would love to hear more on your personal background, your upbringing, college and university years, and what shaped the Ritu that the world sees today. Sure. I think... My background is, is a bit non-traditional in the sense that I come from a government services background. My parents uh, have been very traditional middle-class people. My dad's an IPS officer who's got Kerala Kader. His entire family, most of them are bureaucrats, starting from my great-great-grandfather, who was part of the first Indian civil service. And on my mom's side, they're all doctors. So I've got bureaucrats on one side, I've got doctors on the other. My own brother is an IS officer, currently home secretary at Bihar. So it was always expected uh, that we would all go into the civil services, would become IAS, IPS, IFS officers. But that was something that I wasn't really keen to take up as a career. Uh, my career choices have always been a bit eclectic and unfortunately based more on what I didn't want to do versus what I did want to do. So I'd try something and if I didn't like it, I'd leave it and try something else. The pool of what I didn't want to do get, got, you know, larger and larger. And the pool of what I did want to do kind of got smaller and smaller. And that's kind of the principle I've operated on throughout my life. Uh, boredom is a guiding principle, if you will. That I try something and if I don't like it, I, I take what I can from there and move on to the next thing that I do find interesting. So my parents are very traditional people. Dad's a cop, mom's a teacher, brother's an IS officer, small middle class family. Uh, but big dreams. Fascinating. Let's do a double click on your story from the beginning to your childhood and your college years till today, which is your two startups. Sure. It's a, it's a bit uh, of a jumpy kind of progress. So bear with me on that. So I was born and brought up in Kerala. My family is actually from, my dad is from Lakhimpur, Banaras, Allahabad. You know, he's a hardcore UPI. Mom's born and brought up in Delhi. Dad and mom got married. Dad was posted as an IPS officer in Kerala. So he moved there, lock, stock and barrel when my brother was just like a little baby. So I was born and brought up in Kerala. Uh, consider myself a pseudo Malayali. Uh, so I don't belong to UP. I don't belong to Kerala. I'm stuck somewhere in the middle. 
love Kerala food, love the people, um, find the culture a little restrictive, love Bombay, live here. So bit between worlds. Um, born and brought up and studied in Kerala, did my English literature graduation, um, went on to do my MBA from TAPI Management Institute, Manipal, um, got placed in Wipro Infotech, um, pre-placement offer, end of first year. So partied throughout my second year because I'd already got a job. Uh, got placed with Wipro, um, did the first one year there selling laptops and Microsoft licenses to strategic accounts like Larson and Tubro, Aditya Birla, Mahindra and Mahindra, hardcore accounts doing, you know, seven sales calls a day, laptop on my shoulder. I was first posted in Mumbai, so Ballard Estate to Virar and catching local trains, eating at McDonald's, did the whole sales stint. Um, at the end of one year, I was, I think, one of the few people in my team who would hit their target. And with the closure of my target, I handed in my resignation saying, I am never doing this again. You can't make me do sales anymore. But uh, that was the time when, when radio was starting to take off in a big way. It was the first licensing wave when about, you know, about 20, 25 radio licenses had been sold and Red FM and Mirchi were starting to rule the airwaves. This is like way back in 2002, 2003. So way back. And um, I kind of walked into a radio station one day during my sales calls at Ballard Estate in Mumbai and uh, requested them to audition me. They did. And then I got called back the next day and offered a job as a radio jockey, uh, which paid a pittance, literally half of what I was earning at my current job. And I accepted on the spot, went back, told my parents. I think my mom screamed at me for 20 minutes flat. My dad was uh, much more supportive. He was like, you know, you do what you got to do. We're, we're here behind you. And, you know, that's, that's been them all the while. They, they've always got my back. So I became a radio jockey. Um, with three days of training, I went on to the drive primetime show with Vijay Jose, who's, who's now a very popular Vijay with, uh, you know, I think Channel V. And now he does a lot of stuff on his own. I was on air for about a year. Uh, then I got married, shifted to Mumbai, shifted to Delhi, actually. And uh, mm. there I kind of took on a producer role, became head of content um, for the Delhi station, got hired away by Radio Midday that wanted to set up their first station in Delhi. Uh, Delhi was a highly contested market, 10 radio stations. We were the 10th to launch. Mm. Um, in about nine months from launch, we went from number 10 in the market to number two in the market which I found out only later when we got the time and, you know, ran readings. Uh, but it, it was a spectacular one and a half year journey, uh, which also marked the end of my stint in radio, because by then I'd spent about four, four and a half years there. And I had decided, you know, that this was not working. It was, it was just too small and repetitive a niche for me. And that was when telecom was taking off in a big way. And I got called for a out of the blue interview uh, by the new product development team at Airtel. And uh, I still remember Mr. Yatan Pawa, who's now, you know, global head of strategy for Deutsche Telekom across 135 countries. He interviewed me and he said, can you build a product that replicates the qualities of a free-to-air radio station, but that people are willing to pay for? And I think that was my first stint with product building and I was hooked. So... We built a product called Music on Demand, which was a smart radio concept way back in 2006-2007. Went on to win GSMA awards, rack up millions of users, and that started my love affair with product and technology. Um, I then went on to head the brand team at Airtel. 
I was head of brand marketing for the mobile services division. And uh, I had the luck to work on some phenomenal campaigns spanning all of India, like Harik Friends Zaruri Hota Hai, and then the brand relaunch of Airtel, which were huge, huge budget campaigns. So that was like a crash course in brand marketing. And um, all of this happened, it was around 2011, 2012, and then I got pregnant. And I put on a crazy amount of weight. Okay, not so crazy, but to me, it seemed crazy because I was like, I was very petite, always like 48, 49 kilos. And then in nine months, I went to 75 kilos, or like a whopping 50% of my body weight. Um, and, you know, I think like most women who've been, you know, petite throughout their careers, I thought it wasn't such a big deal. I'd lose the weight. How tough could it be? Famous last words. And um, at the end of two years after my baby, I was about a kilo lighter and I was highly temperamental um, and quite psychotic, frankly. So it was at that time that I, I really struggled with weight loss. And that led to my starting Obino because it was a problem that I felt I had undergone personally and found a solution for. And I had a great deal of conviction around how to solve that problem. So with that, we launched Obino. Um, we started first as a telecom VAS model, value-added mm. services, because that's what I understood. I was a telecom person. Um, but then we realized that the regulatory environment in India wasn't conducive to growing or scaling a business. So we pivoted to a B2C app model. This was way back in 2013-14 when apps were just starting to take off in India. Um, we got invested in by HealthStart, which was a health tech incubator, and then Roundglass Partners invested in us. And then eventually we exited to Roundglass Partners before our Series A in 2017. Uh, we were with them for a couple of years, building out their vision for a larger digital ecosystem mm -hmm. kind of player. And um, then I exited that in 2021 and started Lightbulb. So that's, that's it. <laughs> that was a rather long answer to your question. <laughs> Thanks. Let's hone in on your current venture. I know you're also fundraising now, so that's probably one of the most important things on your mind today. Can you describe your thesis on light bulb and the space it plays in? Sure, I'd be, I'd be happy to elucidate. Um, to give you an understanding of why we formed the thesis that we did, um, let me just tell you a little bit about the background of how we came up with light bulb as a concept. When we were, you know, kind of working out our investor lock-in with Roundglass uh, was when COVID happened. And all of a sudden we went from a vibrant, thriving offline-based society to something that lived online because our only source of contact with other people was through online or digital media. And that was, so we're all parents. I have a beautiful 12-year-old daughter. And um, this was our first experience of her education becoming completely online. It was my first experience of working almost exclusively from home with you know, global teams sitting across US and India. And for all of us, this was quite a dramatic transition. You know, we do work digitally, but there's a very large offline component to our work, which always kind of balanced out the online avatars that we existed in. But all of a sudden, for two years, all you knew was, was the online world. And that's when we realized how one-dimensional the online world is. Um, as humans, we thrive on the give and take of emotion. And that's what characterizes every social interaction. You give energy and you get energy. And where you find corresponding energy, those interactions turn fruitful and productive and interesting and vibrant. 
And where you don't get energy, where you don't get the response, you don't get the feedback cues, those interactions fizzle and die out and leave you with a very bad taste in your mouth. And that is what we realized is happening in the online scenario, whether it was learning, whether it was uh, offline, you know, online interaction for our businesses, whether it was sales pitches we were doing, any interaction which was devoid of human cues and feedback was very lackluster, very non-engaging, very non-vibrant. It just left a very unsatisfactory feeling when you logged off. And that was really where we started thinking about where the world is going next. The world is getting smaller. We are all going to live digitally. Um, if Facebook is to be believed, virtual existence will, will pretty much take over the world soon. But in all of this, what is missing is that human feedback loop. And we specifically were looking very, very closely at things like remote learning, um, remote sales, all of which is the paradigm of the future. And we said, how do we really transform this and make the experience as engaging, adaptive, productive, and exciting and performance-oriented as an offline interaction could be with all the benefits of being online, you know, which is cost and distribution and time saved. But how do we make it as engaging and productive as an offline interaction? And that's where we kind of started thinking about solutions and stumbled across Emotion AI as one of the key methods of generating human feedback cues. And that's what our product really does. So Lightbulb is all about detecting the engagement of the various parties on any remote digital interaction. Now you can turn this technology around and use it for remote learning. You can use it for remote sales. You can use it for remote customer experience management from a bank's video banking to a live session where education is being imparted to B2B SaaS sales that are happening from teams sitting in India pitching to global clients. You know, you can take multiple use cases, but at the heart of it, what it does is it tells you whether the person that you are pitching to or communicating to, how engaged is he with what you're saying or doing or presenting? And what emotions are you eliciting in him? And that's at the heart of what we do. So it seems like the applications are endless. If you just look at venture capital alone, the amount of venture capital deployed in COVID over Zoom is more than the venture capital deployed in the last two years prior combined. And that has happened without meeting founders. We lost some cues. For example, when I interview founder one, and when he or she makes a statement, I like to look at founder two for his or her reaction. We lost that during COVID. But it seems like there's a better way to capture that emotion data. How's your technology, your machine learning algorithms, machine vision differentiated than others? Sure. So um, essentially, emotion AI pretty much works globally the same way. There are two key ways of detecting human emotion. One is through audio, which is your speech, which includes voice, pitch, intonation, pacing, uh, the words that you use. And the second way of doing it, which is much more universal in nature because it knows no vernac barriers, is through facial expressions. Barring some cultural nuances, um, humans express themselves very, very similarly in terms of the emotions and the facial expressions that they use to denote it. So emotion AI works principally in the facial space uh, through computer vision. 
where we teach computers to recognize what a specific human emotion looks like. And then we put together a proprietary algorithm, uh, which is proprietary to every organization and the use case that they work on, where a certain set of cues or a certain series of emotions and benchmarks represent engagement in that particular context. So engagement in a sales context may be a little different from engagement uh, or which is a derived metric in the education context. So the base layer of emotion detection, face detection and emotion detection remains the same. But where the true value comes in is where your organization builds a derivative algorithm on top of all of this, which extrapolates for engagement, distraction, and in some cases, which is what we're working on, uh, even comprehension. How do you assess from human expression that somebody has successfully comprehended what it is that you're saying? So these are all things that become proprietary to your IP and your tech, uh, but the base layer of detecting faces, detecting emotions uh, remains relatively consistent across most organizations. In terms of the model itself, is this more like the picks and the shovels? And by that, I mean APIs or SDKs that then gets used by your customers. Is that the play or is this vertically integrated applications? So what we have been um, really conscious about doing is building a wrapper. We were very keen not to build a vertical solution which would require adoption at all levels. Uh, we are not here to change category behavior. I don't believe that's something we should attempt at this stage. What we want to do is simply wrap our engagement analysis technology um, around whatever software people are using to communicate currently. So our product works with Google Meet, works with Zoom, uh, and soon with some API integrations should hopefully work with Microsoft Teams as well, where we simply wrap around any session that's happening. Because even in an education scenario, if you are using a, a learning management system, you pretty much have a video conferencing software embedded in it. So when you start a session, it opens up a Zoom window or a Google Meet window, because nobody really wants to take on the task of reinventing the video conferencing piece. And that's really, I think that's a game left to Zoom. So what we do is every time a session starts, whether it's on a standalone video conference session like this one, or it's on an LMS embedded video conference session, our SDK wakes up and just wraps around the technology, takes control of the camera feed and starts analyzing data. So it works across every possible use case that there is. So would this be very similar to startups like, let's say, Observe.ai and some others in that category, or would this be different? So Observe.ai currently works on the conversational AI technology, which is that they look at audio as an input. So there they do sentiment mining based on speech transcription. They also look at your voice, tone, pitch. They don't currently, as far as I know, have computer vision or facial recognition or emotion recognition as a part of their services. Mm -hmm. So that's how we're different. In terms of you building this at scale, what is the competitive mode and how do you see that play out over time? I think uh, what's interesting in this space is that because this technology is relatively new um, and because the data sets themselves require so much time to become accurate and get tweaked per context, um, it does create quite a time-based you know, entry barrier for anybody wanting to scale up to the same level of accuracy and technology. Um, then, of course, you also have the insights that come from working in that space in terms of 
what are the metrics, um, what is the visualization of data that would be helpful to each use case. So for instance, what kind of information or feedback is a teacher looking for? What kind of information or feedback is a salesperson looking for? Um, they're both different and dependent on their unique use cases and the context. Now, building up that kind of differentiation and insight obviously takes time. And that is where we believe that the defensive mode comes in. Technology is never a differentiator. Technology can always be replicated with enough resources, whether it's money or people. But um, what takes time to build is the sophistication of the product in terms of accuracy, understanding of the customer's behavior and the nuances which add value to the entire solution. It's rare to see a founder go out second time with the same founding team. To top that, you have a more unique situation where your spouse is one of your co-founders. Why did you pick this team or how did this all happen? Sure. So I'm married to Vishal, who leads product. I lead uh, business development and sales and finance. And Yogesh, who's not married to either of us, <laughs> leads engineering. And we've all been together for you know nine years now with Ubino, and we've known each other. I've obviously known Vishal since 2000, and I've known Yogesh since 2006 because I used to work with him in Airtel. He was my technical counterpart when I was leading product. So I think we've all been with each other for a really long time. There is a great deal of comfort, um, a great deal of trust, um, a great deal of faith in each other's ability to stand tall when times get tough. And because I remember times that we know when, you know, we, we didn't have enough money to make payroll. And uh, the way that we struggled, and this is pre-funding days when we were bootstrapped, the way that we struggled to make payroll and kept each other's spirits up through that period of time, I think uh, it develops a certain amount of trust. Um, and, you know, you know that the other person has your back, whether it's financially, whether it's morally, whether it's, you know, with just the emotional support that you need from the ups and downs that a startup brings. Um, and I think, you know, once you find that, it's like a good marriage. <laughs> Why would you let go of it? I haven't seen a lot of spouses being co-founders over multiple startups. Any words of wisdom for people going that route? <laughs> so not too many words of wisdom, but, you know, it's inevitable after a decade of marriage that you'll run out of things to talk about, right? <laughs> so this just gives you something new to talk about. <laughs> Keeps you engaged. <laughs> keeps you engaged very nicely said how are you deploying the learnings from your prior Ubino days during fundraising now that you're fundraising again and what type of investors are you looking for in your current round so i think um, our experiences at Ubino were um, very much led by the fact that we were first-time founders um, and the startup ecosystem way back in 2012 2014 in india was very very nascent, very immature, you know, startups themselves were very poorly understood. Um, we ourselves, honestly, mm -hmm. most of the time didn't know what we were doing. We were just figuring it out as we were going along. Um, and because of that, I think we didn't really know what to look for in an, in an investor. Um, I think we got lucky that we got invested in uh, and that we were able to scale and grow the business. There is a certain amount of luck that comes with, you know, meeting the right people who have faith in your vision at the right time when you need funds. Uh, very often timing mismatches lead to you know, startups just simply dying on the spot from lack of funds. Um, we avoided that. Uh, and I think also the fact that we were able to successfully exit to our strategic investors was again, luck, timing, and a lot of hard work. Um, 
I think now we come with the wisdom that hindsight provides, uh, that experience provides. We, we know how much uh, and how fast the right investor can accelerate your journey. Uh, you know, right from making sure that you don't make the same mistakes that startups before you have made, you make new ones, uh, bigger ones, but you don't make the usual mistakes uh, from accelerating you to the right connections, to the right people who can make things happen for you, uh, to helping you find the right people to build out the vision, to connecting you to your next set of investors. There is so much the right investor can do for you, uh, which we now realize. And we, we deeply hope to have that in our next fundraising round, um, because, you know, touch wood, our, we got lucky in our, in our last startup. Uh, we are not strapped for cash like we were last time. So last time it was a do or die situation, right? If we, if we didn't raise money, we would have died because we just genuinely, we all come from middle-class backgrounds. We didn't have the money to run the business ourselves for the time that it would take to kind of become operationally profitable. And that's where we desperately needed for investors to step in and give us the next lease of life, which they did. But now we are not in that situation. So we are not raising because we are desperate for funds. We are raising because we know what the right investor and the right capital can do for our trajectory. And that is a very, very different place that we are in mentally and financially. Um, so it's, it's an interesting space to be in. How are you thinking about a future exit or what kind of traction and capital it takes in this space to have a venture type exit? Well, we're still very, very early right now. So our MVP or beta product just dropped in, in mid-August. And uh, the last couple of months have been very exciting. We have a very strong pilot pipeline of both edtech sales enablement and uh, customer experience use cases with some uh, very good names in the, in the industry wanting to work with us and pilot our products. Um, we are very clear this time that we are building for customer delight. And so we are not rushing monetization. We're just offering our product um, as free trials to all of these organizations. Our hope is that as we offer them a 60 to 90 day free trial, we will get to understand the nuances that they need uh, that will help move their metrics on acquisition, on churn management, on teacher training, on quality, um, in sales, on ROI, on deal outcomes. And just, we want to understand, we want to understand what it will take to delight the user and we want to build out those prototypes so that next year, maybe in the first quarter or so when we commercially deploy, um, the product is refined and validated and ready to start providing value from day one. We, we don't want to just throw the product and you know, I really don't want to do a spaghetti to the wall approach and throw it and see what sticks. We, we'd rather just engineer very mindfully um, let them articulate what they need or watch what they need and build it specifically. That's why we've built out the base technology platform and we're offering it uh, to pilots or free trials. And then we'll build out exactly what is required for use case. Because um, this is another thing we learned at Ubino, you know, what you think the customer wants versus what the customer actually wants um, can very often, you know, it may be in the same space, but can be very different in what it looks like and how it is to use. And that can make the difference between speedy adoption or a delayed adoption. So we just want to build once, build right. And being really close to the customer, working with them day on day, sitting with them on data, seeing how they use the data is the best way to build it.
And then that's what we want to do this time. There are plenty of videos on Obino and in many of them, you laid out your teeny tiny target theory, which I call positive feedback loop theory. Can you please describe that? Sure, sure. Uh, so it was something that I spoke about at Intox. So I'm, I'm an Inc. fellow in the 2018 batch. And um, essentially the, the question that they asked us to speak about uh, is what, what is the single biggest learning that has defined your life? That was something you know they kind of asked us to think about and talk about to get started. And for me, it has always been uh, the theory of micro goals. Because what happens is sometimes everybody has dreams, right? We all have dreams. And in some cases, they're simple, humble dreams. And some cases, as is the case with most entrepreneurs, they're really large, audacious dreams that have no grounding in reality. So when, when you dream of that magnitude, you know, sometimes you're, you're just overwhelmed by the size of your own vision. And that leads to a complete lack of movement. You're just so freaked about, freaked out about what you want to achieve that you're really not sure where to get started. And whatever starts you do make, um, obviously, you know, whenever you start anything new, is, is pretty much doomed to failure the first couple of times. And those failures tend to paralyze you and they inhibit all future efforts to work towards your dreams. And the one thing that has uh, always worked for me, and because I have a certain, you know, certain eclecticness in my career, I keep trying new things. The one thing that has always worked for me is the concept of micro goals. I know it's called micro goals now, but I didn't earlier when I used to do it. It's just, mm -hmm. I, I used to do the first small obvious thing, you know, that I could do. And I would try and just achieve that. And then I would pick the next small obvious thing that I could do. And you, those little, 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 little steps would just fit together into, you know, a pathway to where I wanted to go. And then later when I started thinking about it consciously, I realized that that is the concept of micro goals, where you set yourself, as I said uh, in my talk, you know, teeny tiny targets, uh, targets that are so simple and so obvious that they are very achievable. And the moment you achieve them, they, they reinforce you with a sense of motivation with a sense of energy and you feel positive and you feel like yes i can do this because i just did it and it's a great feeling and that powers you to take the next tiny step and achieve the next teeny tiny target till you finally get to where you want to go and then what happens is when you win at something is that winning becomes a habit it's a, it's a mindset because you believe internally that you can't fail and then even when you do fail, you tend to treat it as a temporary setback rather than a permanent outcome. So it, it just rewires the way your brain treats failure. And it doesn't see failure as failure. It sees it as a detour or, or, or a temporary dead end. It doesn't see it as a failure and you just keep going. And I think um, it's a very conscious choice to start attacking small problems that layer up and, and build themselves into big solutions. And that's how I approach entrepreneurship as well, right? If you look at the audacity of trying to build a unicorn, which is what every entrepreneur sets out to do, just the, the size of the problem just freaks you out. But don't think about that. Just think about what you want to achieve today, which is you know, do that one sales call, convert that one sales client, make that one investor pitch, write that one business plan, you know, just little things that are within your control that you can do. And together they just line up and set off an avalanche like a little snowball does.
Earlier, you were laughing when I said I like to interview people who are going to be very famous in 10 years from now. Now, what you just described is a framework I see a lot of successful people deploy in their own lives. So you're already on that path, Ritu. Can you describe your Obino exit? Specifically, was it wealth creating for all stakeholders, your team, founders, and VCs? Did it feel like a win to you in the exit endgame? Sure. So I think... Um... A lot of it, you know, answering it in a very oblique way uh, is that a lot of what you constitute as an exit also um, gets rated by what your expectations are. So if, if you've set out to build a unicorn and then you just have an all cash exit um, for what may not be an absolutely phenomenal valuation, you may see it as something that's not a great outcome. So I think a lot of your reference points um, are basis your expectations. When, when I started Obino, I came from a middle-class government background. Um, nobody in my family has ever, you know, built a business from scratch, any kind of business, not even a kirane ki dukan. And for me to, with no tech background, um, with no history of tech, to build a tech-enabled business and sell it um, was for me personally a phenomenal achievement. And I think when I started Obino, a lot of the thinking about why I started really also impacted my acceptance of the outcome. So I'll, I'll just refer back. Um, I used to be a corporate slave, like most of us always are. And I used to work like 12 hour days, right? I would wake up at six in the morning, leave for office at eight, come back at 7.30, eight. I would see my baby who was two years old when I, you know, just before I left for exactly half an hour awake before she would fall asleep. And then by 10, 30, 11, I was exhausted, but still taking calls and I'd go to sleep at 12 and back again at six o'clock. So I was on this corporate treadmill and that was the only recipe for success as I knew it. And you know, everybody I knew was doing the same thing just in different contexts, whether they were working in government service or whether they were in private service. So a lot of the thinking about being an entrepreneur and having my own startup or business was also about achieving freedom. Um, and for me, you know, somebody asked me this in the past and I gave such a weird answer that they started laughing. For me, freedom honestly comes down to waking up when I want to wake up. So I'm, I'm a sleep addict. I love to sleep. You know, I, I sleep when I'm tired. I sleep when I'm happy. I sleep when I'm stressed. My reaction to a lot of things is to just go to sleep. That's how I deal with a lot of things in my life. And I love to sleep. But in my corporate career, my entire schedule of when I was allowed to sleep and when I was allowed to wake up was driven by somebody else. And at the heart of it, you know, that's what I didn't like. I didn't like that I could not live my life the way I wanted. That I would have to wake up and go to a job that I did not necessarily like because that was what success was defined by. So for me, the ability to wake up when I felt like waking up, that could be 6 a.m. or that could be 12 in the afternoon, was the epitome of freedom. And for me, that's what the exit at Obino represented. It represented financial security. Uh, it represented the ability to create wealth that would passively produce income so that you know, God forbid, um, if light bulb doesn't work out, 
I know that I never have to go back to a corporate job. I may choose to go back to a corporate job. I may choose to start up. I may just choose to work in an NGO or an impact sector, but I never have to go back to a corporate job or a job to put food on the table for myself or to pay for my children's education or to pay for my health care. And that's what the exit of Abino really represented for me. And that's why I positioned it as a wealth creating exit because that's what in my mind, any business or startup should do for the founders. It should set them free. Whatever your definition of freedom is. I love that you define a successful exit and capture the essence of what it means to the founders. I also get the value of an exit for you. It also helped put you on a map of successful founders. You were on many, many talks, including Google Talks. How did that change the plan for you in terms of doing this again, knowing how the game works as an insider now after your first exit? So I think um, what, what happens is that when you are seen to achieve material success by whatever definition of success you know, uh, is in your context. So in a startup context, an exit denotes success. Um, in a corporate context, being a CXO level person denotes success. Whatever your context, when you are seen by your peers to have achieved success, you know, they, they feel that they should listen to you. They may not actually listen to you, uh, but they want to be seen as listening to you. And so you get the opportunity to you know, speak and share your thoughts and blog. But for me, um, blogging, writing, um, videos, speaking, it never really, how do I put it? It never really made that much of an impact. It was a forum in which to share my thoughts and it allowed me to amplify the, my thoughts to a larger audience. But if, if you, for instance, if you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll see that I don't have a massive following. I don't cultivate my following. I write for myself. And I write because I have so many thoughts that I'm scared I'll forget them. So I have, I have a blog, uh, ritu.io, where I just simply write things down that are epiphanies or revelations or interesting thoughts for me that occur to me. And for me, it's like a public journal um, because I'm so bad at writing things down in a diary. I just write them down on social media where I can go back and revisit the thoughts. And then I look at something I wrote three years ago and I say, Ah, so that's what I thought then. Well, it's changed now because I now know this. For me, it's like a journal that I revisit. So um, the opportunities that I do get to share my thoughts, uh, whether it's you know blogs or guest articles or talks, these are just ways of making connections, um, sharing my thoughts. But I don't do it to build a personal brand, which is very much the in thing these days. And I've been advised that I should do so. But I do it, I do it for my own pleasure, because it gives me, it's like taking a thought out of your mind. Uh, if you're a Harry Potter fan, it's like a pencil, where you take your own thought out and you examine it from different angles to see the different aspects of it. And then you leave it there for somebody else to maybe look at and play with in the future. So that's the best way I can describe it. As you exited Obino, it was also interesting for me to see that you became an investor taking bets in other strong founders that you want to back. How did that play out? Sure. So uh, when we when when we did, you know, exit Obino and we came into some amount of money, um, we actually sat down and we defined a 
financial plan for ourselves in terms of how to generate passive income and you know how to deploy that money so that it could support us because we were very clear that we wanted to start up again and we also knew that the fact that both of us were starting up together meant that there was no income coming in to you know sustain the household and we were very clear that we didn't want to dip into our principles which meant that we needed to follow a smart investing strategy for to build a certain passive income and grow our principal over a period of time so obviously we did you know the whole wealth management thing and then we invested money here and there and we also kept a certain budget aside a small budget um because i'm i'm by nature a very very cautious person even though i'm a i'm a startup entrepreneur it's a bit contradictory but i'm extremely cautious and not impulsive at all and i did set us out a small pool to kind of do some angel investing because i also wanted to be on the other side of the table and see what the mindset of an investor is because for me um i'm very clear i am an entrepreneur i'm not an investor uh you know in, in the game of life i came to play i i can't sit at the sidelines and watch that's just not who i am as all, at all as a person but to be a complete entrepreneur you have to understand the way people look at you and what better way to understand how people look at you than by being one of those people themselves so when when you become an investor however brief that experience is it teaches you to look at things as an investor and i believe it's made me a better entrepreneur because now i understand how investors are looking at my business a lot of the thought processes that were incomprehensible to me you know in 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 the past now make perfect sense because i I've, i've held those same viewpoints when i'm looking at investing my own capital in in essentially high risk businesses so for me it was a method of learning and um, there again i didn't really join a syndicate i didn't want an acquired deal flow i just looked at opportunities that came my way uh, through people i knew people i trusted people who i felt were of high caliber morally and you know mentally who i felt could build great businesses and it just so happened that both of the companies that i invested in last year happened to be in edtech um, and that was a conscious choice because i wanted to learn about the edtech market no i wasn't grooming them as future prospects for lightbulb in fact i haven't um given lightbulb pilots to either of them but for me it was a way of learning about the education industry which i was not familiar with um and being an investor allowed me to deep dive into the fundamentals and challenges of that business so i understand it so much more intimately now so for me being uh, an investor um was very much a learning experience i'm i'm an accidental or incidental investor and i don't think i'm going to be a very prolific investor if i do invest and i i will continue to invest i'll invest in small projects um you know in companies that i'm founders that i believe in that i have a personal rapport with um but for me i just think it's such a phenomenal source of learning to be able to look at a startup from both aspects um that's that's a privilege i think rarely accorded to a few people and i want to take full advantage of that Interestingly you invested in edtech startups before you decided to start your own startup serving that category I'm inclined to believe that there's a broad strategy to this that way you did your homework on the sector before you doubled down so what other sectors are you scanning currently that we should know Well honestly nothing immediately um I do believe that the space that we are in um has the potential to to be massive globally um emotion ai in its very 
isn't isn't it's very infancy right now what we are doing is very very primitive tech um in 10 years from now 15 years from now ai um emotional intelligence will be the future because what you're what you're seeing as you know trends globally is virtual worlds we are all starting to live online um things that oculus is doing facebook is doing a lot of these gaming companies are doing are they're creating alternate realities and what's happening consequently and i don't even know how important this is but this is something that occurs to me regularly is that we are becoming more and more lonely and isolated as human beings and i don't think the time is far off uh, and it's, it's a, this is a bit of an outlier thought i don't think the time is far off when artificial intelligence will actually provide companionship i think that's where the future is headed and it's a bleak future but i think it's going to happen so some of the thoughts uh, that i'm gathering right now the things that i'm learning um i all rudimentary steps to imagining a future um where artificial intelligence provides companionship knowledge information and it allows us to inhabit virtual realities which which are literally alternate dimensions in themselves very far out thoughts but i have no idea how it's all going to play out but it's good fun to think about it any tactical actionable feedback for people who want to follow your footsteps so um i think it's it's very difficult really to follow anyone in this space because the problem is that this is a space this is like surfing you can't watch by i mean you can't learn by watching you have to get into the water get thrown around by the waves almost drown a couple of times uh, till you can stand on that board i i personally i don't know how to surf so this is just a very bad metaphor <laughs> but i think this is something that you can only learn by doing you have to put money aside give yourself a couple of years and just jump into it head first and then you will figure it out because it's a sink or swim swim situation right you're spending every you're spending money every single day that you're not earning so if you don't figure it out you'll be left at the end of a couple of years with nothing to show for it except you know an empty bank account so i think there is sufficient incentive for you to learn but this is really not something that you can learn by watching you have to get in there you have to get your hands dirty you have to figure out and i think for a lot of people they'll realize that they don't have the dna to be an entrepreneur because you have to genuinely enjoy this torture a lot of people do it because it looks glamorous from the outside it looks interesting uh, but it's it's a crazy amount of hard work it's horrible on your emotions it's terrible mentally the lows are worse than low the highs are better than high um it's exaggerated and you know amplified emotion every second of the day um it's not something that's generally supported socially in our country um you will face a lot of resistance from your spouse your family your parents your friends people will laugh at you sometimes to your face sometimes behind your back um so this is either for you or it isn't so and you'll find that out only if you do it but for if it is for you then it is incredibly empowering hugely freeing 
because it simply cultivates in you the mindset that you can do whatever it is that you want to do and that you can create your own reality just the way you imagined it and that sense of empowerment i have not gotten from anything else in my life so far so i'm 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 an addict for this stuff so get your hands dirty is a very good core message to leave at how and where can people follow you i'm very active on linkedin um i'm very active on instagram where i i chronicle so i'm i'm heavily into fitness um i think that's the one thing that i i genuinely love apart from you know reading and sleeping um but you can follow me if you're if you're just want to connect socially just want to chat catch me on instagram if you want to discuss anything related to work i'm very open and approachable on linkedin uh, and i have my own website ritu.io if you want to read a little about me before deciding to you know connect with me on linkedin so feel free to catch up with me anytime well that's the wrap i hope everyone enjoyed our new episode on a bit of gamble podcast special thanks to ritu for being very gracious with her time i hope you enjoyed the conversations as much as i did if you enjoyed today's episode be sure to subscribe until next time bye bye